Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Amy Berger. She's an author and founder of Tuit Nutrition, T-U-I-T. So the website is tuitnutrition.com, and she's the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote. So Amy, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, doing good. So tell me about um, you know your background. I found that people that are uh, involved with health-related issues uh, sometimes, unfortunately, have had health-related issues or friends or you know people they know that have had problems. So what's uh, you know what's your history in the industry? Uh, well, yeah, I um, fortunately I didn't have too many health problems. I do have a family history of type two diabetes, obesity, cancer, and stroke. So certainly not the best family history. But when I uh, came into sort of the health scene, or when I discovered low carb nutrition, for me personally, it was really for weight. Um, I, I grew up kind of a chubby child and a, and a slightly overweight young adult, and that was despite doing lots of running and, and eating what I thought at the time was a healthy diet, you know, lots of whole grains and margarine instead of butter, skim milk, that, that type of thing. Um, so I, I learned about low-carb from the perspective of, of losing weight when really nothing else worked, but over the years and researching it and learning more about how it works and why it works, at this point... I would say weight loss is the least impressive thing that that reducing carbohydrate can accomplish. Right. So the the overall strategy is uh, reduce carbs and reduce sugar. I would think, right? Yeah. I mean, sugar and and total carbohydrate. So in you know other starches like pasta, bread, rice, potatoes, granola, all that stuff. Yeah. So what is this? Uh, you know, does it have a name for the way of eating that you found works for you? Is it keto? Is it just low carb, low sugar, or you know, where, where me, have you settled in personally? Yeah, for me, it's really low carb. Um, I don't go out of my way to be in the ketogenic state all the time or to take deliberate measures to have higher ketones. Um, I am usually in ketosis just by default because I just don't eat a lot of carbohydrate, but I don't obsess over tracking my food or counting every little gram of everything. Mostly, I just avoid sugar and, and starch for the most part. You know, every now and then I have some slightly sweeter vegetables like red peppers and carrots and stuff like that, but they're not a huge part of my diet. So I would say I'm more low carb than I am keto. Gotcha. Um, how did this lead to the uh, Alzheimer's antidote book and you know your other work into it, nutrition? Yeah. Well, when I was in graduate school um, studying nutrition, I had to pick a thesis topic. And a few years before that, I had read the book, Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes. And that was the first place that I ever heard about a possible connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's disease. And I had already been eating this way for a long time myself, and yet that was still the first time I'd ever heard about a potential link there. And when I was trying to pick a thesis topic, I said, you know, let me go back to that Alzheimer's thing and see if there's even enough research on it in the medical literature that I could write this thesis on this topic. And lo and behold, when I started digging for information, I was kind of overwhelmed at how much there was. They actually regularly refer to Alzheimer's disease now as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain, which, you know, mm -hmm. right away tells us, again, there's at least some link to glucose or, or insulin in the brain and this cognitive decline. And um, 
it was just stunning to me because nobody was talking about this. And here it was all over the scientific journals. And, and some of these papers weren't new. I mean, some of them go back to at least the 1990s. And I know, to me, that sounds like it was last week, but it was really a couple of decades ago. Yeah. So you dove in and you started reading all kinds of scientific papers about it? Yeah, I mean, that's how it started. Um, the book, my book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, was um, an expansion of my graduate thesis. I wrote my thesis on this topic of Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. Um, and when I graduated, I, I couldn't imagine keeping this information to myself. I mean, I truly felt like it was potentially life-saving information. And nobody yeah. was ever going to find out about it with it languishing on my laptop or languishing on my professor's desk. So um, I, I wrote the book as a way to get it to the people who need it most, which is really the loved ones and caregivers of people with this illness. Oh, good for you. I'm glad you did it. So um, have you, you know, I know we're not promising cures or any of that stuff. You know, that's always the caveat, and, you know, we're not doctors. But what have you heard anecdotally from readers um, on what it's done or how it's affected people they know with Alzheimer's? I have, yeah, and definitely um, want to emphasize what you said, this um is not a magical cure. It's not a treatment. I'm not a physician, so I don't use the word treatment. I'm a nutritionist, so I say that this is a nutritional intervention for Alzheimer's disease to support brain health. Um, yeah, I have heard from readers, not just readers of my book, but readers of other books that have been written about similar approaches, you know, using a low-carb or ketogenic diet to help the brain. And then, of course, there we do actually have scientific research to support this. When people either go on a ketogenic diet or have other, you know, measures that can raise their ketone level. So yeah, it's um, it's definitely not a slam dunk. It's not like somebody who's 85 and has had dementia for 20 years can go on a ketogenic diet and wake up one day and be fine. But we do certainly um, often see noticeable improvement in their cognition, in their behavior, in their memory, and all that stuff. Oh, okay. So that's that's what you've seen anecdotally from uh, readers of various books. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, I mean, okay. it's it's not just anecdotes. We do have. I mean, if it was only anecdotes, I wouldn't have written the book. I do think there is a sound scientific basis for this, and we do see we do see noticeable improvement in people when their ketones are elevated. Yeah, can you go into the basis, like you know, without getting too lengthy? But uh, why does it help the brain to uh, run more in ketones and on sugar? You know, what's the basis of all this? Right. So the reason they call this illness type 3 diabetes is that the primary problem in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's is that neurons in affected areas of the brain have lost the ability to effectively metabolize glucose. They can't, they can no longer harness energy from glucose. So I say that Alzheimer's disease is a fuel shortage. It's like an energy crisis in the brain. So these brain cells, these neurons, are almost like starving to death. They're atrophying, they're withering, they're actually shrinking. And they can measure this on an MRI. You can see that the physical matter of the brain has shrunk in somebody with Alzheimer's. So the, the, one of the most fascinating and promising and encouraging things about this illness is that even though these cells aren't really getting energy from glucose anymore, they can still get energy from ketones. And they've shown this not just in mouse models, not just in rat studies, but in actual humans with this illness. Um, because ketones are kind of like an alternative energy source. If you think of the brain like a hybrid car, we think of it as typically running on a lot of glucose, but it doesn't have to run solely on glucose. It can run on other fuels, one of which is ketones. So um, when we get somebody's ketone levels elevated, it's sort of providing this alternative fuel to these otherwise starving cells. Huh. 
So what happens when, uh, if you're saying the brain is in a starved state uh, because of Alzheimer's, what happens, what's the consequence of that? Like, what does the brain do that perhaps worsens over time because it's starving? Well, um, that's a good question. I think it's um, it's a little backward. It's almost like the memory loss and the cognitive decline are the symptom, not the disease. The disease is the lack of fuel to the brain, and the memory loss is is what happens as a result of that. So, um, it's the, the crazy thing about this is that this can be measured. This this decrease in what what is called the cerebral metabolic rate of glucose, basically how much glucose your brain is using, this decline can be measured in people as young as their 30s and 40s. Nobody wakes up all of a sudden one day with severe Alzheimer's disease. It actually happens when people are younger, but when they're young, the brain is able to compensate. It's only when the, the disease process has been going on for so long and the damage is so widespread that the brain can no longer compensate. That's when you start showing signs and symptoms. But the problem was going on all those years ahead. It's just not, it's not something we look for. It's not something we typically have measured at the doctor's office. So um, the, the memory loss and the, the behavioral changes and all that are actually late players. What happens first is this metabolic change, this this fuel problem in the in the brain. Do people that have uh, Alzheimer's almost always have diabetes first? You know, type type two, or not necessarily. Uh, good question. No, not always. Um, type two diabetes is a risk factor. If you have type two diabetes, you are at greater risk for Alzheimer's. But plenty of people who develop Alzheimer's are not diabetic. But this is such an important point. I'm so glad I get to share it with your audience. Um, the problem with how we diagnose type 2 diabetes is that we only ever look at blood sugar, or, you know, aka blood glucose. They look at your fasting glucose level or your A1C, which is kind of a longer term measure of your average glucose. Um, they never look at insulin. And there's a lot of people out there who have a perfectly normal blood sugar, but it's, the blood sugar is only normal because it's being kept in check by sky high insulin. And in Alzheimer's disease and many, many other, you know, non-communicable sort of chronic modern illnesses, it's actually the high insulin that's driving the problem, even when somebody's blood sugar is normal. Hmm. So, I mean, there's gout, hypertension, PCOS, erectile dysfunction, DPH, all kinds of, of, you know, chronic health problems in people that aren't diabetic, but they are what we call hyperinsulinemic. They have chronically high insulin levels. Right. They're insulin resistant, yeah. Right. What um what do you think is happening to affect the brain, you know, when someone's insulin's high chronically for years and years and years, what's happening in the brain that's causing uh you know this problem? Is it again the, the cells are losing their function, you know, they're becoming overwhelmed by constant sugar and they lose their ability to uh to use glucose or is there some other mechanism? Is insulin is somehow affecting the cells and altering their function? You know, what do you think is causing this process? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, I don't think it's known for certain. So anything that I say would be my sort of educated speculation based on what right. I see in the research. But you know, nobody really knows for sure what is is the fundamental cause of this. Um, it's probably multifactorial. I mean, there there may be a lot of different things contributing. I suspect that this is actually 
it's, it's, it's looking at it from a different perspective. The brain is kind of going into survival mode. The brain is trying to protect itself. There's really nothing more damage. And I'm not trying to demonize all carbohydrate here. I mean, it would be stupid for me to say that strawberries cause Alzheimer's disease or lentils or chickpeas, but there's nothing more damaging to a cell or to a, mito, a mitochondrion, which is where the cell produces most of its energy. Um, there's nothing more damaging to that than a constant, ceaseless, unending influx of huge amounts of glucose. Like when, when you, not to nerd out too much, but when you look at the cellular level, that's very damaging to the cell when you just flood it with glucose all the time, as happens in the modern diet where we're eating so much carbohydrate all day, you know, bagels and scones and lattes and cereal for breakfast and toast and then a sandwich and chips for lunch and pasta and breadsticks for dinner and snacking all the time on pretzels and, you know, fig bars and whatever. So it's, it's almost like by down-regulating, by not letting any more glucose into the brain, the brain actually may be trying to protect itself. And there, there is some scientific literature to support that, that when you look at what's happening biochemically, you know, all of the things that we consider pathological or like diseases in the, um, or something harmful in the body can very often be looked at from a different perspective as the body trying to defend itself. So I think, uh, I think uh, that holds yeah, here. Makes sense. Huh. Yeah. Um, have you looked at scientific evidence to see um, what are the precursors of Alzheimer's or dementia? Do people get uh, tired a lot? Uh, do they start forgetting words? I mean, what are the symptoms? And how do you think that's reflecting in the brain trying to protect itself on its way to Alzheimer's? Oh, it varies from person to person. Um, so it could be anything from, you know, forgetting dates, forgetting names. Um, if people like CPAs and accountants that do a lot of math in their profession might find that they can't calculate things in their head as quickly. Uh, you might get lost. Um, so there, uh, people will misspell things um, or like look. They'll be sitting down at a table and, and they'll point to an object across the table and they say the wrong word or they can't think of the word for that object. You know, something they've looked at for 20 years and they just can't think of the word for it. Um, so it varies from person to person. And um, I just think the brain, I don't know that the disease develops the same in everybody because it's region specific. Right. You know, at first, the entire brain is not affected. It's only certain regions. And so some people may have it more severely than others or it may be affecting different regions more severely and that might determine and which symptoms they show in those early stages. Well, I know it's different for everybody, but I figure there's common threads that I was asking for. You've seen that in the literature. Oh, um, I guess you described a lot of it. Yeah, I just, I don't know that there's any that are across the board the same. I think it would just be a general, a general decline. And usually people can recognize it. You know, in the early stages, they know. They know that something's wrong. Okay. That's terrible. Yeah. You said that it's uh, showing up in some people that are 30 and 40, or 30s and their 40s, and what does it look like then? Well, no, what happens when people are that young, that's when the brain starts to have lower metabolism of glucose. The fuel shortage starts then, but they don't become symptomatic. They don't start showing memory loss or, you know, confusion or stuff like that until the disease is so, you know, severe and widespread that they can't yeah. compensate anymore. So that, and that, and that's different for everybody. Like some people, you know, it used to be that Alzheimer's disease was like an old people disease. It only happened to elderly people. They used to actually call it old timers disease, jokingly. Um, but now, you know, you know, people in their fifties and sixties are getting this and it's, um, you know, even some people in their late forties and fifties, and we call that early onset Alzheimer's. So, um, 
it does seem to be manifesting or showing up earlier and earlier in the same way that we see toddlers now with type 2 diabetes and teenagers yeah. with obesity and with type 2 diabetes. So all of these metabolic, you know, insulin problems are happening younger and younger and there's, we could speculate as to why, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that that's happening with Alzheimer's too. Yeah, it makes sense. Hmm. So um, through your nutrition website, what kind of services do you provide and, you know, what kind of people come to you for help? You know, what do they mention? Sure. Yeah, my site is tuitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T nutrition.com. Um, most of the people who come, so I, I do provide, provide one-on-one consultations. At the moment, I'm not doing kind of long-term ongoing support, but I can either help somebody get started with this way of eating or help troubleshoot if they, they're already doing it and not getting the results they want. And that's the majority of who comes to me, um, the people that are already doing this, but they're not getting where they want to go. Um, every now and then I do get someone with um, Parkinson's disease or PCOS or some other specific condition that these diets have been shown to help. Um, mostly I get people that are struggling with weight loss, but I'll, um, I'll, take, I'll take all comers pretty much. Um, I have yeah. people that I re- re- other ketogenic-oriented nutritionists that I'll refer people to for cancer. There's some promising research in that area, and a lot of people are kind of pursuing ketogenic diets in, in conjunction with conventional therapy, not doing it by themselves. But I am, that's not really my area of expertise, so I refer out for that. So people come to you mostly because they're close to what they think is a ketogenic diet or low-carb, and they're not losing the weight they want to lose? That's, yeah, that's most of who comes to me. I mean, I get I get a lot of different people, but that's probably the most of it. Yeah, that's really useful. So, all right. So, what are what do people experience? Like, do they lose weight initially when they do the diet, and then it plateaus, or they don't lose things? And you know, what condition do they come to you? What are they saying uh, brought them to the the point of coming to you? Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Usually, what happens is um, weight comes off pretty quickly at first, and then it either slows down or stalls entirely. And that's normal. You know, a lot, sometimes what I do is just recalibrate the expectations. People have to know that that's normal, but if, if, if you only have five or eight pounds to lose, you know, if that's going to take a little more tweaking, but if somebody comes to me with, you know, 50, a hundred pounds to lose and the weight isn't budging, something is wrong there. And so we either have to rearrange the food they're eating, or I very, very often see undiagnosed, unrecognized hypothyroidism, especially in women. This is extremely common when people are doing a very good diet, like really not not messing up where they can't mess up. They're doing really well. They're exercising and the weight still isn't budging. I would say eight times out of 10, it's undiagnosed hypothyroid. Yeah. And, you know, it happens in men too, but it's much more common in women. Yeah. So what what does that look like? Um, You know, a woman needs to lose, let's say, 60 pounds. She's lost uh, 15 so far, and now it just has stalled. And, you know, she comes and talks to you, and, you know, you'll, I guess you'll ask her to get blood work done. You'll evaluate it. Uh, what are the common scenarios from there that you've seen? You mean with, with the hypothyroidism? Yeah, or, yeah. Well, since you said that's what happens most of the time, right, what will that look like? What's that pathway Yeah, like? well, I mean, a lot of the, for, for the people that aren't hypothyroid, what I see most often is simply eating too much fat. You know, we like to pretend that calories don't matter or that fat doesn't matter. It does. You can't gorge on mayonnaise and cream cheese and fat bombs and coconut oil and think you're going to lose weight. Um, so a lot of times I see people skimping on protein. They're afraid to consume adequate protein, so instead they eat more fat. There's just a lot of myths and misinformation about protein in the, in the low-carbon ketogenic world right now where 
people think protein turns into sugar or it's going to kick them out of ketosis. So instead of eating enough chicken or eggs or fish, they eat more fat. So that's, that's a big thing that I see. But when that's not the issue, when we do have to go to the blood work, um, usually it's women who are either already on thyroid medication and they just need a higher dose or a different kind of medication. Unfortunately, thyroid is it's easy to treat when you have a doctor who knows what they're doing, but there's a lot of like very outdated, antiquated treatment methods for this condition, and, and a lot of people aren't getting the help they need. So, um, or, or sometimes doctors will only order one or two tests. It's the, the TSH or the T4, which really doesn't tell anyone anything about their thyroid. So um, huh. I see a lot, a lot of people with normal, they've been told you're, you're, you're normal, your thyroid's normal, nothing's wrong with you, simply because the correct tests haven't been ordered. And when those tests are done, sure enough, they're either low or they're in the very bottom of the normal range. So what's an example so, um, of some of the tests that are typically done versus the ones that need to be done but aren't? The one that's just about always done is the TSH, that's thyroid-stimulating hormone. Sometimes a doctor will do T4, but the most potent, most powerful thyroid hormone, the one we, I mean, we want to look at everything because we need to see where in this hormonal production process the, the holdup or the roadblock is. So you want to get a comprehensive thyroid panel. The most important one is probably the free T3, free like free of charge, F-R-E-E, free T3, because if that's low or low normal, that's the smoking gun. Um, there, there's, because there's a lot of people whose TSH and T4 will be normal, but that free T3 is low. And these women feel like garbage. And um, I, again, like I'm not a physician, so I, I don't treat, but I do recommend that these, these patients and, and their doctors don't necessarily live and die by the blood work. You have to go by the symptoms. You have to go by how somebody feels. If somebody comes to me and they have, you know, symptoms screaming off the chart, I don't really care if the blood work says they're normal. They feel terrible. So um, I think, unfortunately, in modern medicine, that's kind of, we've become so wedded to the numbers and the testing that we ignore how somebody actually feels. Oh, so you've had that happen, where the numbers look normal? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon. What, um, so what are some of the symptoms of hypothyroidism? hypothyroidism that you've seen? Oh, well, it's a real party because um, it's uh, weight gain or inability to lose weight, even when you're exercising and following a good diet. Um, Depression, constipation, hair loss, being cold all the time, um, sometimes a very low heart rate and low blood pressure. Basically, everything in the body slows down including like, I guess, your brain, your feelings, that's why you get depressed, that's why you get constipated, even literally the movement of waste or your colon slows down. Um, the thyroid is the master regulator of metabolism. It's why it's impossible to lose weight when you have low thyroid um, and, and you're cold all the time. Your body can't even produce enough energy to heat itself. The whole system just gets slow. And there's so many people living with this who don't realize that, that this is treatable and fixable, that this is not normal. You shouldn't have to feel awful every day. Yeah, well, that's true. Huh, interesting. So um, if someone has uh, hypothyroidism and you help them figure this out, do they? I guess they would then have to go to a doctor or can nutritionally they change what they eat and restore thyroid function? Well, it depends. Most of the time they do have to work with their doctor to get medication. Um, 
you know, sometimes hypothyroidism can be due to nutritional deficiencies, an iodine deficiency or a selenium deficiency, but I think that's pretty rare in in the industrialized world. I think that's more in maybe like like the third world, the developing countries that don't have access to to a better food supply. Um, so I do think most people have to work with their doctors. Unfortunately, I can't I can't prescribe the medication. Well, what happens it, if uh, you know levels look normal, but the person says they feel you know half dead and tired and depressed and all that, and the doctor says, "Well, your levels are normal. I'm not prescribing anything." What do you do? Yeah, this this happens all the time. Um, they the main answer is find a new doctor. They have to do a little bit of research to find a more supportive doctor. Um, and if that's not going to happen, you know, maybe they can just have a very patient, calm discussion with their doctor and maybe suggest, hey, can I just try? Can I try a trial of this medication and see what happens? Um, or just, just emphasize what I said, you know, doctor, I understand that my, my blood work looks normal, but I have you know, every sign and symptom of this illness is what I experience every day. Or there's the, here's, there's a list of 15 symptoms and I have 12 of them. Um, I think the art of, of doctoring has been lost in some cases. Unfortunately, they just look at, at the computer printout and if there's nothing flagged, it's high or low, they send you on your way instead of actually listening to you and, and trying to help you and help you feel better, which is the job of a doctor in my opinion. But um, it is it is difficult, and I, I encounter this problem all the time with clients whose doctors won't work with them. And so, the, the, the solution really is just to try to find a doctor who will. Hmm. Okay. Well, you have people that come to you that have had uh, you know a thyroidectomy. The thyroid was taken out, and they're on this diet, and they're having problems, or not often. No, I haven't had I haven't had any of that. No thyroidectomies yet. Okay. No, I was just wondering. Hmm. So. Um, Again, you said a lot of them, it's uh, undiagnosed hypothyroidism. Um, how often do you see that a diet intervention helps them versus them having to go on medication? Oh, uh, I think most of the time they do have to go on the medication because, you know, they come to me, they've already been doing a low-carb or ketogenic diet for some amount of time and they're, they still feel bad. But there are plenty of cases where, they do feel better where somebody has hypothyroidism and the, the keto diet makes them better and they can either reduce, like if they were already on medication for it, they can reduce the amount they're taking or sometimes get off of it entirely. That's usually with, um, and it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, it tends to be cases of Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. So um, not yeah. everyone that has hypothyroid has Hashimoto's, but usually that's the one that people seem to feel much better when they do low carb. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, it's, right. I, I mean, I wish I wish there were like like yes or no or black and white answers. It really varies from person to person. Some people do better on low carb. Um, I've never heard of any stories of people doing worse on low carb with low thyroid, except when they're under eating and over exercising and they don't realize it. And it's usually younger women, women in their twenties, hmm. sometimes early thirties, that are just overexerting themselves and, and starving themselves, even though they, they don't intend to, they're just not eating enough. And so of course the body shuts down. Right. It makes sense. Yeah. But that, that's not because the, of the diet. That's because they're not eating enough. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, going back to the, uh, the protein versus fat debate, you know, from what I've seen and talking to a lot of, uh, you know, keto nutritionists, um, is they think that, you know, excess protein is a problem and it causes gluconeogenesis and, you're saying that your opinion is the opposite. It's uh, excess fat is worse than excess protein. I mean, what are your thoughts around there? 
Well, so it depends on the context. Um, for, for people that are trying to lose weight, I would say protein is their best friend. If you have a lot of body fat to lose, if you eat a lot of fat, even if you're in ketosis, ketosis only means that you're burning fat. It doesn't say whether you're burning all the fat on your plate or the fat from your hips and your backside. So um, it's not that you need to go low fat, low carb, but you, you can't douse everything in oil. You can't put four tablespoons of butter in your coffee and think you're going to lose weight. Um, there are other conditions where you might, protein might affect the ketone level. And for some people that literally require therapeutic ketosis, for those people, they might have to watch the protein. And it's not low protein. It's just that they can't eat unlimited amounts of protein. They can't eat maybe as much protein as they would want to, you know, as they would if they weren't restricted. So um, something like epilepsy or some of these neurological conditions that seem to respond to a higher ketone level, at least in some people. Um, but it, it is true that there, there is a biochemical process called gluconeogenesis, but it's not a mass action. It's not that if you eat a big steak, it's going to spike your blood sugar. Um, so, you know, some people, individual responses do vary. There are some small proportion of people out there who are more sensitive to that. For most people, you can eat a massive amount of protein and the glucose really isn't going to budge, assuming we are low carb because all bets are off when you're eating a lot of carbs and a lot of protein. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, now, so, so people that are on a low-carb diet and are having problem with weight loss and they don't feel, you know, they're, they're not experiencing the hypothyroid symptoms. Let's say they feel okay. They're just stuck weight-wise. It sounds like one strategy may be look at your protein to fat ratio and tweak it. Go back and forth and see how that affects you. Would that be a strategy you'd recommend? Yes, definitely. And it's um, some people get hung up on what we call these macros or their percentages, like, well, I'm supposed to eat at least 80% fat or 75% fat. So they're afraid to eat more protein because it's going to skew that ratio, but it's not, um, that's just not how it works. For for the purpose of, of reducing carbs to lose body fat, that's not, that wouldn't be a concern for me. I would increase the protein and, and reduce the fat. And again, like I said, you don't have to go low fat. I don't want to make people scared of fat. It just means you don't, you can't consume a ton of it with impunity and think, and think, you know, if, if you eat hundreds and hundreds of grams of fat a day, your body has no reason to tap into its own stored fat for fuel. It makes so sense. Even if you're running on fat, if you give it enough, why would it need to tap into its own resources? Exactly. So this is why even in ketosis, you can actually gain weight. You can gain body fat in ketosis. And I know it because I've done it. Um, I'm not oh. allowed to keep mayonnaise in my house anymore because I, I can't control myself around mayonnaise. And guess what? If you eat a ton of mayonnaise, you're going to be highly ketotic, highly ketogenic, but you're not going to lose any body fat. Oh. This is yeah. This is stuff people really don't. They really don't know. And this is things that aren't aren't being told in the in the keto world. People just want to make it easy. Just just eat fat. Don't eat too much protein. Like mm, well, and, and that works for some people. That works for some. But but I I find more and more a lot of people um, that's that's derailing them. Well, you would think that fat makes you full. Um, so that if you have a lot of fat, there'd be a natural breaking mechanism that would cause you not to have too much of it. Because you'd be like, wow, I'm so full, I can't eat anymore. But I can tell you, like, from my own personal experience, um, you know, I've approached ketogenic eating. I eat low carb, but I feel like my tolerance for fat has gotten a lot better over time, so I don't get as full as I used to. So I can see how I could start having more and more fat, and I would be okay, and it wouldn't be so full. So that breaking mechanism 
I feel like, at least for me, it's uh, it loosens. So I, what are your thoughts around what I just said? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, very often you'll hear that fat is filling, fat will keep you satisfied for a long time. And that does seem to be true for some people. Um, for, for other people, myself included, I actually think protein is a little more filling. But protein in a whole food context, it's just even like a fatty protein, like a good fatty steak, a fatty pork chop, a piece of chicken with the skin. So I'm not talking about like a whey protein shake or a protein bar, um, some kind of right. whole food. So probably the protein with the fat is more satisfying than the protein alone. But I think fat by itself, I don't know, because I can eat a load of nuts and not be full. And I, I could have consumed a thousand calories and I still have room for more. So um, mm. I think that that kind of varies from person to person. But yeah, I can't deny that some people do find fat more filling. Yeah, this is what makes medicine so difficult. You know, there's no one thing that works for everybody. So it's, it's tricky. Everything's got to be tuned in. An individual circumstance alters what works, at least somewhat. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some underlying principles. I mean, we know cutting back on carbs for the most part will work for a lot of people. Then you just have to individualize it from there. Yeah. So, in the people that you worked with, um, you know, that have had success, like you said, they'll 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 have lost weight. They're eating, you know, low carb. They'll plateau. They'll work with you, and then you're able to help them tweak either through, you know, they end up getting medication or they change their their ratios, and then what, the weight loss starts again, or what do they experience from there? Yeah, sometimes it starts again, and, you know, sometimes there are um, other issues that people don't tell you when you're talking to them on the phone or even in person that they have other things going on in their life that are getting in the way of weight loss. Oh. You know, maybe they're following low-carb 23 and a half hours a day, and there's that <laughs> one half hour where life just gets you and they eat whatever, insert, you know, insert sugary food here. Um, or, you know, right. some people have binge eating problems or food addictions and keto, you know, for some people that re reprogramming your metabolism for a lot of people helps with that. They find they, they don't binge anymore. They don't want other foods, but for some people that's still a problem and, and binging on a whole pan of keto brownies is really no better than binging on a whole pan of regular brownies. <laughs> So, um, right. you know, we, we have to be sensitive that, that sometimes it's not just the food. And I can't, if I, if I have a client that I think there's something else going on, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not qualified to help with that. I'm not trained. All I can do is bring it to their attention. Like, hey, I think there is something else going on here. Okay. And last, last question or two. Uh, what's your opinion of uh, intermittent fasting and exogenous ketones as tools to possibly help people? Um, so everything is context dependent. I think fasting can be great. Um, not everyone has to fast. You can absolutely do fine on this diet without fasting. So nobody should feel like they're doing something wrong if they're not fasting, but certainly it can help, you know, especially if someone's especially insulin resistant, if they're prone to snacking all day, it's better for them to maybe only eat one or two meals a day or, you know, eat normally four days a week and fast three days a week or whatever system works best for them. So fasting can, can be good. Um, I, I don't recommend it for people that are underweight. You know, we have a lot of people with either body dysmorphia or distorted body image who want to do keto to lose weight and they want to fast. And those people are already underweight. They don't need to fast. Um, and the exogenous ketones are a mixed bag. I think for something like Alzheimer's disease, where we really truly need to get some ketones into the system, I think they can be really helpful. They're not going to have the same effect as doing the diet because the diet 
has sort of multiple different cascading effects on all kinds of organs and glands and systems, whereas the, the exogenous ketones will go some of the way toward that, but not, not do all of the physiological shifts that the diet does. Um, I don't think they're a weight loss tool. I don't, they, they're not a diabetes reversal tool that like we have some sort of commercial clinics now. There's Virta Health, there's Heal Clinics, there's some businesses starting up led by some of the, the well-known keto doctors and researchers to, to reverse diabetes, get people off their meds. Exogenous ketones aren't going to do that. All they're going to do is put ketones into your blood. But there are some people who um, find it gives them an athletic boost, like if they're endurance cyclists or runners, some people benefit from that. Or some people find in the early stage of a ketogenic diet, that helps them transition. Some people have really bad headaches or they're just tired and that's prolonged. If you get that for one or two days, we call that the keto flu and it's no big deal. It goes away. But some people really have a harder time. And I've just heard reports that they do well with those exogenous ketones. So there, there, there might be a time and a place, but I do think they're not, um, they're not a substitute for the diet. Let me put it that way. Yeah, that I've heard universally. I wonder as it relates to Alzheimer's though, like you said, it may be a starvation of, um, fuel for the brain. I wonder if taking exogenous ketones for those people in particular would be a boost for the brain. Oh, it, goes, it, <sighs> yeah, you know? no, it will. And that's why I specifically said, I think for Alzheimer's, they can be really helpful, especially because if you have someone who has severe dementia, you're not going to get that person to follow a ketogenic diet. So we want to get these people's ketone levels elevated any way we can, including exogenous ketones. I fully support it in that sense. And a lot of the research that's been done on this with Alzheimer's has been done with those exogenous ketones. There's only, I don't know, one or two studies, if that, that have been done with the diet. A lot of it's been done with those exogenous ketones, so we know that those do help people. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for uh, people to get in touch if they need help? Is it a website, com, or uh, other ways to contact you? Yeah, they can contact me through the website, and I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Chew It Nutrition. They can reach me that way. Uh, I don't do much on Facebook, but um, my website and Twitter is probably the, the best way to reach me. Okay. Well, that's great. Liamie, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to talk to you. All right. Hold on a second. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.